how do you know God exists? And I tell him, well, look around the creation. And I, and I, and I could do that, and, I, and in my opinion, I should do that on the one hand, because, you know, uh, Romans chapter 1, right? So, but he says, ah, how do you know? That still doesn't prove to me. I mean, what do you, what do, you do then, you know? That's interesting. That's the kind of thing we're going to talk about. So you're using an argument from church history, actually, right now when you say that. But then Dave has his tie-in with the 13th century that a lot of you don't know about. So, <laughs> so oh, Ray Comfort said that? Yeah. Okay. What did, what did he say? Did he say that was a way to go about talking to people? That is true, Joy. I try to get with an atheist sometimes in college campus. Yeah, they uh, they made the argument that matter couldn't be uh, fully joined together, and so uh, I kind of agree with that. So I didn't know where he took it from there. So uh, matter can neither be created nor destroyed. I know. That's interesting because, well, we believe God can create matter out of nothing, but we can't we can we not destroy matter though? Can we destroy something? Burn something in a fire? Huh. Okay. But it even had, I talked to Pastor Mike afterwards, and he said even with their argument, they believe something eternally exists. He said, I mean, you can't be created or destroyed; it was always there. Oh, that's interesting. Right? That's a good thought. Yeah. I didn't think about that ever. Yeah. Time. Yeah, that's a good thought. And that is true, what you just said. You just said the truth. The Bible assumes the existence of God. <clears throat> All right, so several attempts have been made throughout the year, centuries, to prove from logic, logical point of view, that God exists. In the 13th century, Dave's favorite historian, Thomas Aquinas, uh, a Catholic guy, a Roman Catholic guy, uh, came up with his system of theology. In fact, it's still used to this day in the Catholic Church. And uh, he said, he came up with, I remember I did a paper on this in college, he came up with five proofs for the existence of God. And when you read him, and I, when I read him first, I thought, wow, this is awesome, man. He's right about this, you know. And, he, and, I, and I still think he was right about what he said. As far as, proof, as far as logical thoughts about how God exists. And so over the years, that's been boiled down in different ways to four basic arguments now. And here they are. I'm, just, I'm giving these to you so, because this is part of systematic theology. Um, there's the first of all what they call the cosmological argument. Cosmos means world in Greek, right? And so, uh, you know, so we're, we're talking about uh, argument from the world itself, and that that is this. That the argument is this: every effect has a cause, as Dave um, just said in so many words. I think is, is the one he was using. You know, if you look up in, in the sky and see a plane. Someone's piloting that plane, right? The plane's not going on its own merit. It's, it's got, uh, the pilot has to, to, to take off and direct it and, and fly it and all that. Oh, okay. <laughs> True. And that's another, could be used for good purposes, but also maybe scary purposes, right? Um, but the cause in that case is the pilot, I'm going to say. Maybe it's a weak illustration. The effect is the plane flying through the air. And when it comes to theology, we know God created the world, so the cause is God, right? He's the first cause. Uh, as as uh, 
Uh, Aquinas said God's the prime mover or the first cause, and the effect of that is the world. He created the world. And so that sounds, uh, to me, you know, we can tell from the universe there must have been a creator, right? And we can see that, right, us in this room. There's people out there at USF campus. You know, it's always the, have you noticed it's always the USF campus, by the way, or campuses that have a problem with this? You know, you talk to the average blue-collar worker, by and large, he doesn't have the same problems that the people on the university campus has. <laughs> I noticed that. They don't go around talking about evolution. They talk about their next paycheck, you know. They're not worried about it. They didn't even, half of them don't even believe in evolution. Most of them don't. I've talked to them. But uh, this, the campuses, you know, they, they're onto that. So that's an argument. And there's a second one called a teleological argument. Teleos, of course, another Greek word. We always have to have Greek words, right? Means end, you know, the end of a matter or the goal of something or the purpose for which something is directed. And uh, there is, and we, so when we look in the universe, we can see there's purpose in the universe. We can see order in the universe. Um, it's not an accident. We're not here by chance. There's design in the universe, right? Look around. Look at you. Look at him. All these people here. There's obviously design in the human body. There's design in the eye. I mean, the eye is amazing. You know, when you look into the eye and, and just take that alone, um, it's amazing to look at that and to see this divine or see to to see design uh, with DNA to see that all of us are, you know, it's like a dictionary for us, and each one of us different in the DNA. That, that in itself is an amazing thing, and you can go on and on and on. Every blade of grass has design in it. Every insect has design in it. People look, scientists study it under microscopes, and they see all these things. Plants have design, and trees have design, and it goes on. There's the, the, orb, the planets in, in, the, uh, in the solar system orbiting have design. In or Were you going to say something, Jimmy? Okay. And uh, all this, and so you can, it's, it's clear and unmistakable to me at least that there's design in the universe, so there must be a designer. Uh, God created the world with a purpose in mind. And then thirdly, there's what the people have called the anthropological argument. They better call it the moral argument, by the way. Word anthropology doesn't tell us a whole lot. What's anthropology anyway? Study of man. And so, um, but really this has got to do with man as he is viewed as he views life from a moral point of view. In other words, people think, people want justice in the world. They see, you know, all kinds of horrible things happening throughout history, and many, many examples we could give throughout history, and we, and we say, hey, why isn't there justice here? We demand justice, right? And uh, it's a moral argument. Why isn't there something that we can correct the situation? Now, where does that idea come from? Where do we get that idea? Well, we say we got it from a, a creator. God gave us that idea because um, we, we believe it, it came from him. We have such evil in the world, we believe it had to come from something bigger than us. So we would say it came from God. That's that argument. But fourthly, there's this ontological argument. That word has to do with existence. Just means existence. God's existence in this case. Um, people always come up with these terms. You know, philosophy, I'd take a year of philosophy at Clearwater Christian College. I thought I was going to shoot myself, honestly. Um, and uh, finally got through with that year. I said, man, that was crazy. Um, but we don't, need, you know, we don't need to have any physical evidence to prove God exists. We just need to think, and this argument says we just need to think he exists, and therefore he does, okay? Um, if a person has the idea of a perfect being like God, then such a being must exist, or we wouldn't have this idea in our head, okay? Did I write something like that down in the notes in my rush, rush, hurry, hurry offense I was doing this past weekend? Okay. Uh, what is thought must exist in reality? is the idea. Another way to put this so you can understand this better, if people think there's an infinite being, 
we're finite beings. How could we think there's an infinite being? How could that thought come in our head unless there actually was one? Therefore, this must come from, there must be an infinite being. That's that argument. And, and uh, there's arguments similar to that. Ray Comfort, apparently, does Ray Comfort use this in witnessing to people, Dave? Really? I'm surprised to hear that. So, well, I mean, are any, any of these arguments, Joy, any four or others? Weak? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if I he, believe there's a ton of little elephant floating right next to me right now. Does that mean that they're really awake? Yeah. This, this argument, you'd have to, this is one of those philosophical things that guys sit around and come up with that, to make our lives miserable, I think. So we've got to take them to class and learn about what they said. Um, so, yeah, it seems weak to me, too. But I'm, maybe somebody's got a better way of explaining this than me. Um, but... So does Ray use arguments similar to these? Not necessarily that one, but he does now. Oh, okay, okay. I'll tell you something else. Ray is a good communicator. I met Ray Comfort in California. We got to go in the studio. He's a cool guy, nice guy. But Ray Comfort is a um, gifted guy when it comes to evangelism. Really gifted. You know, I'm not going to go out there and be Ray Comfort. You know, Ray Comfort is, does what he does. He's really good at it. What do you think, Joy? I was just going to say, he does use the anthropological argument. Um, he states that John wrote his law on our hearts. Have you ever heard that? Uh, okay. So he'll appeal yeah. to people's conscience yeah. and try to make it work that way as well through the law. Yeah. Romans 2, which talks about our conscience, by the way, I think it's Romans 2. I can go with anything the Bible says about our conscience, you know, knowing there's a God. I can go with the, uh, what did you just say? Uh, that God's written his law on our hearts. Yeah, I can go with that. I, I understand that. This one is more, the way these guys present is more from a philosophical standpoint than the Bible, you know. But yeah, so do arguments like these prove the existence of God or anything else you can come up with talking to a lost person? They don't. I mean, unsafe people are going to try to defend the world. Do you think an argument, I mean, just to add to his position here, if you will, I believe that my argument if you, would be more effective than not so much trying to use a philosophical viewpoint. Yeah. Right. Based right. on who you think right. he is. I agree. You know, the, un, the, yeah. the atheist or whoever, he, he may come up and say some of the things that she was saying about uh, the student at USF, but deep in the heart of man, it, it's built in us. So we can argue from the Bible and just and stand on what we believe. That's right. Yeah. You know. That's right. Part of what we're doing is covering part of what systematic theology is saying. We can just, right. So we can understand, and Jimmy, what you said is, is correct, but I guarantee you there's... For every one Jimmy uh, Wiggum's uh, idea of how things should be done, there's a, probably a, a thousand people that would say something different. You know, so yeah, I agree with you. But a lot of people are gonna just—they're thinking, "Hey, man, I can tell people there's a designer out there. There's a design in the universe." Okay, I, I agree that there's a design in the universe. It's it's true. But I think these things are true for Christians more than anybody. Yeah. They do, yeah. Yeah. And this goes back to Joy's discussion we had a few weeks ago on apologetics and how you should talk to people, you know. Uh, Steve? Yeah. Bill Nye, the, the engineer guy? He's, he's really an engineer, not a scientist. Right. Yeah. yeah. 
It is. That's how I see it. Yeah, I see it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We we saw that here on Tuesday night in this auditorium. We had it as a church. We watched it, as a matter of fact. Yeah. But, yeah, some people weren't happy with Ken Ham's argument, some Christians. And I know, I understand what the guy was telling me. He didn't present, he could have presented, he was all for presenting the gospel, by the way, this individual. But he felt like Ken should have presented more scientific information along with it. And uh, but the, the, when it's all said and done, Ken did give the gospel, and that was a very a good thing that he did. So um, we can't prove God, you know, um, we can't prove His existence. Uh, people try to spin it. See, they put their spin on it. Or let's say you did get someone to thinking along the lines of these arguments. Um, well, what what kind of a God are they going to believe in? They're going to think, well, there's a higher being, like intelligent design. The idea of which intelligent design is very interesting to me. I like it, but is it going to prove to people out there? And so, you know, that there's a God, uh, you know, probably not. But they may think, oh, there's a being out there, some kind of being. Who he is, we don't know. You know, certainly not the God of the Bible. Wouldn't lead to that necessarily. So, a couple observations here. The Bible, number one, assumes the existence of God, as Jimmy said. What does the first verse of the Bible say? My first four words, in the beginning, God, right? It doesn't say, oh, by the way, uh, let me, our story begins with uh, a God. And uh, let me explain that uh, there is a God, you know, we can see by his creation. That he's, it doesn't say any of that. It just says in the beginning, God, you know. Jimmy, I don't think we're going to. Yeah. <clears throat> Turn to Acts 17. I didn't have us reading that, so that's good. I'm glad you brought it up. Acts 17, 22. So, um, <laughs> chapter always makes me laugh because uh, Acts 17, 16. Paul's waiting for his friends, Silas and Timothy, to get there to Athens. While he was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked with them as he was observing the city full of idols. So he's going around town. <laughs> Man, this is ridiculous, all these idols, right? He's getting upset about it. So he's reasoning to people in the marketplace. And I uh, like when eight, eight, verse 18, they say, what would this idol babbler wish to say? Um, and what may we know this, this, this news teaching you're proclaiming, verse 19, you're bringing strange things to our ears because the people in Athens are... They don't do anything but goof around all the time. Verse 21, that's my translation. Um, <laughs> verse 22, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Now, that's a great way, the way he, by the way, the way he came across, it was very respectful. He didn't say, what a bunch of morons you people are. <laughs> got a bunch of idols everywhere. We could use that approach because we get upset, but it's not going to get us anywhere. He said, you're very religious. I was passing through and I saw this altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you. And he talks about the God who made the world. So, yeah, he, he just comes across, across with that approach, you know, which is the correct. And this is a good passage on witnessing, by the way, too, or approaching people. Um, and it goes on. So, yeah, the Bible assumes God, you know, 
exist. It speaks of him speaking in history, acting in history. It doesn't try to prove it at all. The only, by the way, the only people questioning the existence of God are maybe the people in Psalm 14.1, which says what? Yeah. Now that's taken. That could be taken two ways. By the way, the fool said in his heart, "There is no God." The fool in this verse, by the way, is one is morally deficient, not necessarily mentally deficient. That's what that word means. And so he's just he has this view anyway of you know against God anyway or anything like that. <clears throat> and so he says God doesn't exist. Another interpretation, by the way, a lot of people see it this way. They say what that means is this is something to think about. It's practical atheism. It's not that they're saying that there's no God at all. They're saying God doesn't care about us. That's what they're saying. That's what they think it means. I'm not saying it means that. Just something to think about. He doesn't care about us at all. You know, people say when something good happens, they say, oh, there is a God. Heard people say that? Because something good just happened, there must be a God. Something bad happens, they say, why did God allow that to happen? You know, that kind of thing. So it depends on, but whatever it is, the testimony of the writers of Scripture tell us unquestionably that God exists. They They don't even, you know, blink. Look at Hebrews 11.6. <clears throat> There's a little possible subtlety going on in Hebrews 11.6. Um, I thought about this verse a lot, and uh, it says that, uh, well, somebody read that verse when you get to it. You must believe that he is, and you must believe he's a rewarder of those that seek him. So, uh, a lot. Some people think that means you must believe that he exists. Could be. It could be you must believe that he is. That he is God. That he is who he says he is. Um, and uh, that and you believe that he's going to reward you. So, if there's a subtlety in there, I'm not t- totally sure. But even then, uh, if it's you must believe he exists, it's you know. Uh, my my thought is the way the Bible comes across is probably more you must believe that he's God. You know. And he's the faithful God, and Hebrews chapter 11, people of faith are trusting in the faithful God in that context. Anyway, the Bible, to make a, a long story short, the Bible assumes the existence of God, doesn't try to prove it. Number two, the Bible teaches that everyone possesses knowledge of God through creation. And again, if we could turn back to Romans chapter 1, verse 18, I know we've looked at this every week, I think. <laughs> um, but um, we'll look at it again under this heading. And not only this, some other verses too. Romans 1.18, if someone would read that, 3.20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. All that which is known by God is evident within them. God made evident, God made evident to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, his internal eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So people should be able to see <clears throat> from creation that God has eternal power. He has he has his eternal power, and God is deity are are shown by nature itself. Now you know it doesn't tell you how to be saved through creation. We talked about that, but it does tell you something about God. That he's a creator. And people, what do they do with that truth? They suppress it, right? So they're going to put a spin on it when you talk to them. Spin it somehow. It's just like the, what was the person you said you used about, about <coughs> matter, whatever yeah. they said. Yeah. They put that, they put that spin on it when the scripture, their, our argument.
right here. He was in the shop. That's our community mm-hmm. to come from there. Right. That individual is going to put that spin on it because they want to put that spin right. on it. They don't want to say truly they are the God, even though I think consciously or that many do really believe in God. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and you keep going through that passage, um, at verse 21, that even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. They want to, they're putting him down. They're going to try to escape it. They became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. They said they were wise, but they became, became fools. They exchanged the glory of the uncorruptible God for an image, and they got into idolatry, right? right. Therefore, God gave them over the lust of their hearts. said, okay, you don't want me? Right. I mean, what else Go your way. Right. That's right. And so now we're at a point to where we have transgenders, right? Everywhere, well, supposedly. But whatever this is going on, I don't know. So this is God, you know, God gives people over after a time. If they, if they say, I don't want you, I don't want you, I don't want you, okay, do whatever you want to do. You're going your own way now. And then they receive in themselves that penalty, which is due them, it says in Romans chapter 1. Uh, which is a sad story, story, right? Look at John chapter 1, verse 9. And none of this makes me happy about these people. It's very sad. I feel bad for these people. And uh, I feel, uh, you know, a burden for these people. I feel bad that they're in this situation they've gotten themselves into. And, that we, and that's why we're here, right? To tell them the gospel. John 1 9. <coughs> John 1 6. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Enlightens every man. Now, what does that mean? The true light, Christ came into the world enlightening every man. Well, the Arminian people say that God gives, it's called provenient grace. He gives grace to everybody that comes into the world, and they have the ability to choose Christ or refuse him, one of the two. They have that option. They're born with that now. So in time, you could say, I choose God, you know. It doesn't necessarily take a special act of God working in you. You're, you already have, you're equipped with that ability, okay, to do that. But I don't think that's what it's referring to personally. I think it's referring to general revelation again. Lightning every man that comes in the world is, hey, there's, there's, God is here. He created this world, you know. And uh, Grudem says in his book, uh, page 659 of uh, his theology, uh, he says it is more likely this that this, by the way, it's in a footnote on page 659. It's more likely that this enlightening is the light of general revelation that all people receive. The ability to observe and understand many facts about God, actually a couple of facts about God in the universe. And then verses 10 and 11, look at verse 10 and 11 of John 1. He keeps in the world, the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. This is parallel in some ways to Romans chapter 1. Uh, verse 11, he came to his own, his, those who were his own did not receive him. So, Romans 1, uh, you know, God creates the world. People turn their back. They, didn't, they knew he was God. They didn't honor him as God. John 1, uh, he's, everybody comes in the world is enlightened. However, the world, even though the world was made through him, they don't know him, and they're rejecting him. You know, there's a similarity between the two passages in that, in that sense. So, uh, you know, um, the general revelation, I think, everybody knows there's, that God's there. They reject it, though. Any comments about that? Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. So three of us believe in it at least. <laughs> okay. 
And then thirdly, God provides for humanity through natural means. That's another way he shows himself. Look at Matthew 5.45. Matthew 5.45. These are, don't skip over a verse like this too quickly. You know, a lot of times a verse will have a truth in it. Just a few uh, phrase. You'll ca it'll capture a truth and theology that you need to think about. So that you may become, he's talking about <clears throat> in the context, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. So that you may become the sons of your Father who is in heaven. You've know, you got to show you're different, right? You're a son of God. For he causes <clears throat> his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So it doesn't matter. God has showed himself. God has been good to everybody, right? Ultimately, he's, uh, we'll talk about that later when we talk about the goodness of God. But he's, um, he's shown his love to everybody, his uh, common grace, we call it, right? Look at Acts 14, 17. Acts 14, 17. Verse 16, and the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. That's an interesting verse anyway, right there. Uh, and yet, Acts, 17, Acts 14, 17, yet he did, did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfy, satisfying your hearts with good food and gladness. People are blessed every day when they have rain, when they have crops growing, when they have food to eat in their belly, and yet turn their back on God anyway. Yeah. That's right. That's what I was just thinking when you, you know, Jimmy, you need to do a put together a series on the prosperity gospel because this thing grows every week that I, I hear about it. Yeah. And I pray for my prosperity while you're at it, while you're putting that together. Okay. So <laughs> that my soul prosper even as, yeah. Another one for you, First John, what is it, 3 2? Your soul prosper. Anyway, whatever. So, yeah, um, yeah, God's good to people, you're right. And then and to, 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 to take that attitude would be pride anyway. What about the nations or places where it's, there's droughts too, you know? They're not getting all that. Or maybe they're, not, maybe they're in a third world nation where they don't have the prosperity we have. And then what do you do with the prosperity gospel, you know? That's another question to ask. they got an answer for that too. Oh, do they? Yeah. Oh, yeah, what is this? Yep, they do. Right. And they'll preach prosperity to the people and say, This is why you're not prosperous. Oh. I see. I see. You give me all your money, and God is going to bless you tremendously. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and every once in a while I'll read about the so called prosperity type person preaching in one of those countries, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so the bottom line with all this existence of God is just preach the gospel to people, the simple biblical gospel, not philosophical stuff, and preach the Bible and, uh, and then let God work as he does, right? We leave the results in him. Anybody have any more questions about the existence of God or thoughts on that? <clears throat> okay, let's move on to the attributes of God. Um, people talk about the attributes of God. Stephen Charnock, a Puritan back in the 1600s, wrote The Existence and Attributes of God, two volume set. What is the attributes of God? What does that mean? Yeah, characteristics. What? Qualities, 
qualities, yeah. Qualities. Yeah, qualities also. That's right. What characterizes God? How is God, what are the qualities of God, the character qualities of God? What's his character like? Who is God according to the Bible is what we're talking about. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And there's been several ways, uh, like, well, go ahead and name some of those. Justice, righteousness, what else do we, how do we characterize God? Holy, faithful. And, and we know these things, we hear these in Sunday, as, you know, growing up in Sunday school even. Unless you went to Jimmy's church and he knows about the prosperity gospel. So, <laughs> what else? Omnipresent, yes, right. Unchanging. And it goes on and on, right? And we'll talk about these things. Uh, but there are several now. How do we categorize these? Um, and this is a question systematic theologians have faced for years. How do you categorize these? How do you classify these um, character qualities of God? How do you, you know, what order do you put them in? These kind of things. And there's different ways people have come across to, to categorize these um, uh, qualities of God. The, the one you normally see and you'll read it in Grudem, too. And by the way, oh, speaking of which, let me go ahead and give you the, the homework. Unfortunately, sorry I don't have this printed out because this was the hurry-up two-minute offense this weekend. So, um, I was, Oh, by the way, if you want to, if someone can copy this. Can you do it? Okay, you can give it to them. Okay. And I'll explain it to you when Wendell passes it out. Wendell, make a few extra just. Thank you, Wendell. So, the one you normally see is God's divide. They, they call it, talk about communicable attributes, <laughs> incommunicable attributes. You know, uh, we hear about what do we have normally hear communicable, and we what sentence do we hear it in nowadays? Yeah, communicable diseases, right? Share the disease, right? So communicable are characteristics that God and people share. Okay, and uh, hopefully I wrote that down in your notes there, or something like that. Uh, God loves people, and we can love people, right? Those, those, those are shared attributes. Um, <clears throat> incommunicable means those characteristics that God does not share with people. For example, God is all-knowing. Are we? Well, some people think they know everything, right? And uh, I was talking to somebody was telling me the other day, oh, it was a, a pastor, and he said, yeah, he said, I was working with a group. The problem was they thought they knew everything. <laughs> I said, yeah, it's oh, never easy when that happens, you know? Uh, but we can't be all-knowing, right? Um, but that's how theologians classify the person of God and those, under those two. But all these ways we try to categorize God break down eventually. John Frame, uh, the, the newest, not the newest theologian, he's been around forever. He's a great theologian, actually. But he wrote a book, the new systematic theology book. That's how I've been, looking, I've been sharing some things from, from him in here. But as John Frame says, this classification breaks down. <laughs> In one sense, all divine attributes are incommunicable. Uh, our love at best is an, Im is, is an image of God's love, but it is not divine. How can we match the love of God? We can't even begin to match the love of God, even though he tells us to love, right? Uh, God's love is identical to his very essence. Therefore, it's radically distinct from ours, even from our love at its best. And that's true. I mean, we can't begin to anywhere love, love like God does. Grudem agrees with that even. In another sense, all divine attributes are communicable. Man is an image of God, so he reflects that image um, to some degree or another. We can know certain things, right? Not everything. That's what I was sort of thinking that we can know, okay, even though we know that God is uh, infinite and all-knowing, but yet we have a little bit, a little bit yeah. of that in yeah. terms of knowledge. Of right, so yeah, a little knowledge. Yeah, very limited, 
for each Very one. Limited. And each one of us have a, has a limited worldview from where we came right. from and our background. Yeah. So we see things a certain way based on, our, on what we've gone through in life, you know. Yeah. You can't really say all these actually break down because when you think about it, yeah. you know, uh, even with the, you talk about love, we got a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What the world needs now is love, sweet love, is what I've always said. <laughs> but that didn't get me anywhere with anybody when I said it, though. Um, but, yeah, so all these breakdowns. So here's the thing. Um, really, does the Bible categorize God's love? Now, look, go to Exodus 32, I think it is. I just thought of this. Um, Exodus uh, 33, or is it Exodus 34? Exodus 34, I'm sorry. Exodus 32 is the golden calf. And then 34, <coughs> and verses, uh, the Lord is, you know, Moses says, show me your glory in 33. And then in 34, uh, 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with Moses as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him. This is a great verse, by the way. And proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. This is the Lord talking about himself. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands. Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. A lot of times you'll hear sermons on this, and what they do is, and, and I'm not, and it's okay, it's not a big deal, you know, people preach, all of us, everybody makes mistakes, and everybody has a slant when they're preaching, and everybody, you know, you could, you could criticize everybody's sermon from now till Sunday, right, for a million different ways, probably, but that's not what we're here for, we're here to be edified by the scriptures, right, uh, and a lot of guys will tr they'll cut this in half, the first half of it is the, is the uh, you know, the good attributes of God, the, uh, you know, the goodness of God, Last half is they'll say something about the wrath of God, maybe. You know, he's punishing people who are evil and so on and so forth. But, you know, um, when it comes to the Bible, the Bible, when it comes across, doesn't, doesn't break down the attributes of God in any way at all, in particular. It just throws it out there, depending on what's happening, you know, in circumstances. There's no breakdown, no classification as such um, that's listed or anywhere in the Bible. So we're just going to take it one at a time, certain key attributes of God. Not based on, uh, not based on any, anything like that. Um, but I will, uh, before I start there, um, let me explain this homework assignment to you. And I don't have the paper in front of me, so I can't really look at it. But uh, Wendell's got it, Dave. Thank you. Thanks, Wendell. Okay, let me just tell you this. Um, the first one in this legible handwriting, the first day you read pages 142, 141 and 142, that's A and B sections, okay? Yes, this is all Grudem. Everything we're reading in this class is Grudem. Just keep it simple that way. The second day, the second reading, however you do this, there's five readings, you read pages 143 and 144, you read sections C and D, and they're marked out clearly. C, whatever it says, D, whatever it says. Third uh, day, pages 156 and 57, you read section A1. A and 1, okay? If it goes to A2, don't read, you don't need to read 2, just A1. The fourth and fifth days, that's, this, this is readings for two days. The last one, pages 157 to 160, you read number 2, okay? Point number 2 there. Does that make sense? If it doesn't, let me know. Call me up. It's not a problem. You can call me up anytime. And if you have any questions during the week, you call me up. I'll direct you to Jimmy Wiggum, and he'll give me his phone number. So. 
Jimmy's message service says you had the wrong number. <laughs> yeah, and then it, Bob will give it off to Steve. So, all right, the first uh, attribute of God that we're going to look at, just you know, you're going to see these in different orders depending on how you look at. It. God is invisible. By the way, I'm going to try to tomorrow to get the AC guy to come out this week. Check this whole AC situation out. God is invisible. He is spiritual being as opposed to physical being. He's not physical. He's not composed of physical matter like we are, right? Uh, look at John. Let's look at some verses. John, somebody, uh, Dave, can you look up John 4, 24? Yeah. Rob Burt, Colossians 1, 15. And Steve, do you mind looking up 1 Timothy 1, 17? 1 Timothy 1, 17. And Jimmy, Hebrews 11, 27. And uh, Dave, John 1.18. So um, these are verses about the, the invisibility of God or the God, the fact that he's spirit and not, not physical. Okay, John 4.24, do you have? Go ahead. Colossians 1.15. Yes, let me let me stop for a second because Rob came up with a good idea the other day. We've I've, I've met with Rob for a long time now, Tuesday nights dinner and dinner and discipleship. I like this. I just thought of that dinner and discipleship. <laughs> and uh, Rob came up with a really neat idea just to throw out if you guys ever want to do this. He said, "Why don't we read through the book of Hebrews tonight?" I said, "Okay." He said, "You read one chapter out loud. I'll read one out loud." So we do that. It's kind of neat, isn't it, Rob? Because you just all it is is scripture. So I'm right now. What we're doing is just listening to scripture. Okay. We don't, we don't go into it. We just read it. That's all we do. Yeah, you get the whole book. You see it all. I read chapter one. He reads two. Uh, he, went, he called the odd numbers last time, and then he messed up and read an odd and even. All right. So John 424. I'm sorry. Say that again, Dave. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Colossians 115. Invisible God. Image of the invisible God, First Timoth Timothy 1.17. Right, invisible again, Hebrews 11.27. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, but he endured as seeing him, as seeing him who is unseen. Yeah, what a great verse, Moses endured. Or seeing him who is unseen. Couldn't have been put any better, right? Or seeing, I think King James, seeing him as invisible. John 1.18. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no one's seen God the Father at any time. They saw Christ on earth, you know. They didn't see, we're talking about God. Uh, like, for example, but in, in Exodus, Moses saw him. His, his, his Moses saw, had a very limited view of, we can't even say, Moses didn't see him fully or anything like that. He just saw a very limited view. And uh, what didn't, so we can't say, I mean, if, he would, if you saw God, if you fully saw God, um, the invisible God, then um, you would die, you know. And it says in verse in John one eighteen, 
No one has seen God any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He's talking about God the Father here in this verse. Um, Jesus came, and yeah, we know Jesus is God, yes. But Jesus came as the, uh, uh, you know, God-man to explain who God was. And when people saw him on earth in the human form, they saw, they saw, they knew what God was like, right? Now, if he, if, if he was in, not in human form and Jesus in the incarnation, people, everybody would have died in the first century that saw him. They couldn't stand the glory, you know? So um, I, I've never heard anybody give this argument before. Your unbelievers, they tell you this, actually? It's weird. Yeah. I don't understand the argument. Do you guys understand? Right, that's right, yeah. That's, there's no argument. They have no argument there. We just said there's not even an argument. I don't even understand what they're talking about. Um, I don't know what to tell you, Dave, because there's no argument there. It can be made even, but is it, can anybody explain this better? <laughs> to, to help Dave out with this. Okay. Right, that's right, yeah. And then again, like we said, people want to put a spin because they don't love, they, they hate God, and so they're going to try to get something that they think is, oh, here's a proof. You really think about this, Dave. Those people that tell you that, is it more than one person or what? How many people have read the Bible? Those guys have read the Bible or read the Gospel of John? That many. I guarantee you that. Okay, they don't even know the context or anything about anything, period. So, All right, God's invisible. Being invisible in spirit distinguishes him from idolatrous forms of worship, you know, that which were so prevalent in the Old Testament. God made it plain to Israel, don't make any physical form of me. Go to Exodus chapter 20. Can someone turn to Isaiah 41.7? Exodus 20, and these are the what? What's in Exodus 20? Decalogue. Yeah, the Decalogue. I like it. <laughs> Ten Commandments, right? Exodus 20, 1 to 4. Here's God, God is spirit, God is invisible, unless you're at the courthouse. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above, on the earth beneath, what are under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, third and fourth generations of those who hate me. So you don't make any image, physical image of God. How could you know what to make anyway? How could you possibly represent God anyway? Yeah. But people did it in the Old Testament all the time. You can see how it would lead. Not, I mean, when you really think about it, you can see how it would lead to idol worship. Yeah. If you worship an all kind of whatever. Yeah. People want to say, uh, people want to, they, they want to see what they're worshiping. They want desperately to see what they're worshiping. So. They do it, and to this day, across the world, there's places where they do idols. They make physical idols, I'm talking about, not idols of, like, the, the heart. That kind of, yes, sir. Uh, from my Catholic background, uh, there are catechisms yeah. that have been over the great three or fifth ascension that will list the ten, when they list the ten commandments, some of them will actually omit uh, not making yourself a graven image or an idol. Straight up, they will, they will just omit it just altogether. But then wow. what they will do is uh, they will take, don't covet your neighbor's uh, wife and goods, which is really one. They'll split that into two, so now you have ten commandments. Oh, I didn't know about that. Yeah. didn't know that. It's unbelievable. Okay. Because that's such yeah. a huge thing for them with uh, scapular 
Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, back in the Reformation, too, one of the things that the, the Reformers argued against it and they kept doing, kept getting rid of was relics and statues and stuff like that. And, and they said, these are, I, these are uh, breaking the Ten Commandments here, you know. It's one of their arguments. Uh, I, I, care, I, I was in Indiana one time, Dave, when I was living there for a few years. Well, on, on New Year's Day, we decided to go. Some of us decided to. There was a Catholic church down the road. We decided to go in the back door to see what was going on, you know. And it was funny because there was, you know how you have these, uh, these things you fill with water and you get the button on the bottom, you push, and you put your cup underneath and get water? They had one of those in the back, and it said, on their holy water. Really? I thought, well, how, how do you distinguish between what's in here and other water? Maybe I guess they sanctify it somehow with their hands or they bless it. The, the, the priest Probably the priest blessed it, yeah. So you got to put the sign on that thing that says holy water, you know? So uh, we didn't drink any, but I probably should have. It might have helped me out, but I didn't. Uh, Isaiah 41.7, what does that say? Isaiah 41.7. So do we not have that in the Bible? 17, really? Okay. What does Isaiah 41.7 say, first of all? Well, Yeah, we, we have to make images, right? People are all have, they're always making idols. Now, now we talk about God being spirit. What is this? Okay, let me let me read Isaiah forty nine sixteen to you. Hopefully, I said that right. Um, what is it? What do we do with this verse? In verses like this, God says, "Behold, I have scribed you, Israel, on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me." Was he the palms of his hands? And you see verses like that lift. And all through the Bible, it talks about the arm of the Lord. Maybe that's not the greatest verse to look at right there. The arm of the Lord and the hand of the Lord and the eyes of the Lord and these kind of things. What do we do with that? Does that mean God has hands and eyes and arms and so on after we just said he's invisible? Shadow of his wings. Oh, boy. Somebody's come up with a big word here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm not so sure if that word is spelled an H or not. Anthropomorphism uh, is a... I try not to say that word because it's just blah, 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 blah. nobody knows what it means anyway. It basically is language that speaks of God in human terms, though. You know, so we speak. We can understand God. Uh, it's a way to accommodate to us to understand God. God doesn't actually actually have a physical arm or hand, but when we say the arm of the Lord, we know you know we're talking about the power of God. You know, in fact, a lot of times the translations will instead of translating the arm of the Lord, they'll translate the power of the Lord. I think Nasby does that a lot, and you'll see in the column, literally the arm of the Lord, you know, um, and that's how we understand God better, so it doesn't mean he's got a physical body, you know, people that criticize, criticize the Bible can't understand poetry either, you know, and poetic terms and things like that, which the Bible uses many, many times, and then there's times when it's flat out, just flat out literal, so at any rate, God is invisible, anybody have anything to add to that? Yeah, that's a great passage. There's some passages like that, Rob, where they make they make idolatry look absolutely stupid in the Bible. 
It's so ridiculous. And, they, and, they, and it's supposed to be satirical, meant to be satirical, so people realize this is foolishness, you know. All right. Secondly, God is living. Wendell? That, or that his, his, he can, the eyes of the Lord search throughout everywhere, you know. He can see everything, knows everything and all that. We understand it. You know, it's a very vivid way for We could say, well, God knows everything. Or we could say, uh, God knows everything that's going on. Isn't it much more vivid to say the eyes of the Lord are searching throughout, you know. We get that better. We capture that. Yeah. We, we've talked about this in hermeneutics, how the, the uh, Bible portrays oftentimes in ways very vivid. Instead of, just, instead of just concrete, well, God is, you know, here's the doctrine of God. It says, no, God is, uh, you know, like a, you know, a consuming fire, things like that, you know. So that's very vivid to us to understand. So secondly, God is living. You guys may have heard of the philosopher uh, Nietzsche back in the day said that what? God is dead, right? He said God was dead. And that was in the 1800s. The problem was Nietzsche died in 1890. <laughs> So he's dead, but God's still alive, right? <laughs> yeah, right. We know one thing for sure: God Nietzsche is dead, right? So not that that's a, a great thing, but you know, that's that's we live and we die. God doesn't live and die like we do. He's not here for a while. He's here for eternity, right? So if we we can look up some verses again, because really this class is about looking up all the verses on a given subject, or some of them rather. So Jimmy, if you go at Psalm forty-two two, and Bob Jeremiah ten ten. Steve, Matthew 16, 16. Wow, these are easy. Rob, this is really tough. I got 1 Thessalonians 1, 91. Is that, do we have 91 verses? 1 Thessalonians 1? Uh, I think it's 1 Thessalonians 1, 9. That's <laughs> your life first. Yeah, I know. Who could forget Psalm 195, though? My favorite chapter. Uh, uh, Wendell, 1 Timothy 4, 10. Okay, First Timothy 4.10. Okay, God lives. Psalm 42.2. Yeah, the living God, right? All right. Uh, Jeremiah 10.10. 10. Matthew 16, 16. Yeah, son of the living God. Remember the, uh, uh, back when Jesus said, uh, God's not the God of the dead, God of the living. Uh, what about First Thessalonians 1, 9? Yeah, living true God. First Timothy 4, 10. And that's why it's good to study this subject because you, you're, we're pointing out the verses. We see these verses and read them, but to point out the one fact again and again and again, he's the living God. See? Yeah. 
that's hilarious. I love it. Yeah, First Samuel 4, I think it, uh, yeah, I think it's First Samuel 4 through 6, somewhere in there. Yeah, it's hilarious, and Dagon falls over. The living God, right, overpowers you. John 5, 26 says, um, um, just as the Father has life in himself. So this, this life comes from God, right? All life comes from God. He's living, um, but, he, you know, in our case, he gives us life. In his case, he has life, okay? He possesses life, always has possessed life, always will. He's not dependent on anybody. He doesn't think about this. God doesn't need food or water or oxygen like we do. Like today, when I got to lunch, I was starving to death. I had a banana for breakfast this morning. I got home, man, I was really hungry. And why? Because we need food, right? And that's nothing at all. I mean, I'm not starving to death. But, um, you know, I needed food. Uh, and, uh, and, and we need oxygen to breathe, right? God doesn't need any of that stuff at all. He created all that. He doesn't need it to exist. Acts 17.25, he's uh, totally self-sufficient. He has everything he needs, and he's just sufficient in himself, you know? Um, he has no needs, doesn't even need us, by the way. You ever thought about that? God does not need us, either. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he, now, he wants our worship and all, and I'm not saying he doesn't care about us, he loves us, obviously. I'm just saying he doesn't need us for his existence. He's self-existent, he's perfectly self-sufficient, he's nothing at all. Look at Genesis 2, 7. Somebody can read that to me. I'm going to read John 5, 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to those whom he wishes. So the Father gives life and the Son gives life, and God's a life-giving God, right? Because life is in himself, he's totally self-sufficient. What does he, uh, Genesis 2, 7 say? Right, and so God gave the first man life, and that's what, and he gives, not only does he give physical life, but he gives spiritual life as well, right? He uh, raised, uh, Ephesians 2, we're raised up from the dead, spiritual death, to new life in Christ. And so he makes us alive in Christ. So God is living. All right, Dave? Yeah, Nietzsche, yeah, not too good, because... I think they had to get a uh, casket for him, if I'm not mistaken. Which, sadly, that's the human race, though, you know. So, uh, okay, thirdly, God is eternal. He's eternal. He's always existed. He always will exist. There's no beginning with God. There's no end with God, any of that. Um, Genesis 1-1, the beginning God, right? doesn't date it. It doesn't tell us when. Uh, You know, the when, the beginning, or anything like that of God, it just says in the beginning God. God's always existed, always been. So the little the child, you know, the child comes up to you and says, "When did who made God, or when did God start?" <laughs> and there is no answer. There's no. There's no. We can't say. Well, he started here. You know, um, he never started. He's always been. And that's something that's a mystery beyond us. We'll never understand. Period. Uh, Deuteronomy thirty twenty seven. Could someone turn there? I should probably tell somebody. Um, Bob, Deuteronomy thirty three twenty seven. And uh, Dave, Psalm 90, verse 2. Okay, that's right. i got to distinguish the Daves, too. The, I'm not talking about the Dave Clark 5 here, either. Well, that goes back in the day, right, Bob? Okay, Psalm 90, verse 2, Dave. All right. Somebody know the Dave Clark 5 here? All right, Genesis, uh, Deuteronomy 33, 27. Go out the 
okay? The everlasting arms are underneath Deuteronomy 33:27. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Always there, right? Everlasting, everlasting. No beginning, no end. Isaiah 40, 28, I'm going to read that. Do you not know what a great passage the end of Isaiah 40, uh, 30, uh, 40 is, by the way. Do you not know, have you not heard the everlasting Lord, the everlasting God, the Lord, creator of the ends of the, of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. And so he's the everlasting God, right? And, he, and he's always been. Um, he knows the beginning from the ending. He sees the past, the present. Uh, he sees the, pre the past and the future as if they're in the present. He sees everything. He knows everything through time. So he's eternal. D, God is omniscient. God is omniscient. What does that mean? He's omniscient. I know you guys know. This is like the theological church. All knowing. Yeah, all knowing, right? Who was that student that said that? <laughs> he has all knowledge, right? He's all knowing. Right. Yeah, he's the most humble man on the face of the earth. And Moses said, I'm the most humble man on the face of the earth. He didn't say it like that. Some, it's funny, somebody, somebody thought that, I was reading one time about Numbers 12 where it says Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth, or whatever it says, and somebody said, well, that word means miserable in Hebrew, and I looked it up, and I thought, huh, I don't think so, not necessarily, it probably means, I'm sure it means humble, you know, and uh, so I, th I thought, well, so Moses would be the most miserable man on the face of the earth if that was the case, and I could see him being miserable with that crowd of people he had to work with, right, but he was the most humble man, but anyway, God is all-knowing, he knows everything, there's nothing he does not know. He knows it all intuitively. He knows it automatically. He doesn't have to research like we do. He doesn't have to study. He doesn't have to learn. doesn't have to go to school. doesn't have to get an education. None of that. He knows it all already to begin with. Look at John chapter 21, verse 17. John 21, 17. This is a great statement by, uh, I think it's Thomas. Oh, I said Peter, didn't I? I think it's Thomas. John 21, 17. Remember, uh, no, this is, I'm sorry. Okay, good. I'm glad I said this because I'm thinking of something else. Okay, John 21, 17. Uh, the Lord's talking to Peter. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, what? You know all things. <laughs> you know that I love you. That's interesting, isn't it? He said, you know all things. You know I love you. Because we would think before, I can see churches taking Peter out after he denied Christ three times and, you know, saying, you <laughs> need to get this right with God, right? And Jesus said, um, I want you to take care of my sheep and feed my sheep and, and so on and so forth. But Peter says, I know you love me. I know you know all things, and I know that means you, you know I love you. That's interesting, right? But to, to make a point... Of, the, of what we're talking about. He knows all things. Peter confessed that to Christ. Um, okay, let's break this down a little bit. Um, three, in three things, three ways God knows. Number one, God knows all things that are happening presently. All things that are happening presently. And I'm going to have to get you guys to read. We're going to keep doing this throughout the course anyway. So, um, uh, you ladies mind reading? I don't know how. Joy, uh, Hebrews 4.13. Dave Moulton. Psalm 139, 3 and 4. Dave was just getting ready to write his notebook down, and he had to open his Bible again. <laughs> uh, 
Steve, Matthew 6, 8. Dave, the second, not here. Okay, Rob, Matthew 10, 29 and 30. And uh, Jimmy, 1 Samuel 16, 7. He knows all things happening presently. Uh, Hebrews 4.13. Yeah, he sees nothing's hidden from him, right? Um, Psalm 139, 3 and 4. You scrutinize my path and my lying down, and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Okay, that's a great, that whole chapter is great. You want to memorize a great chapter. Psalm 139. Um, Matthew 6, 8. Yeah, before you ask him, you're going to pray. You're getting ready to pray. Understand this. God already knows what you need. That doesn't mean you shouldn't pray. He wants you to pray. But he already knows it in advance. Uh, Matthew 10, 29, and 30. Knows everything. Knows the hairs of your head. And uh, knows the... Uh, Spare the little bird that falls to the ground that dies. He knows that. He knew that happened on, on your limb out in your backyard. He knew about that. On my limb in my backyard, he knew about that too, you know. And then 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. When God sees not as man sees, the man look at the man look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Right. So the Lord knows everything that's going on right now. We're going to quit there because I think we should get out of here at 10 till 6. I thought about this, and that's only right to do 